0: Hello, this is Jim Stein, your host for New Books in Mathematics. Our guest today is Tom Jackson, a science writer who has written Chilled, A Fascinating History of Refrigeration. This book reads like an expanded chapter of James Burke's classic book, Connections, and I hope that Tom will take that as a compliment, because that's how I mean it. I think it's fair to say that refrigeration is not only one of the most important foundation stones of our technological society, it's also one that we take for granted. Tom, welcome to the show.
1: Hi, Jim. Thanks for having me on. It's
0: a pleasure. Tom, what gave you the idea for writing this book?
1: Well, um, there are so many stories about the refrigerator, and a lot of them don't really include the refrigerator. So uh, it, the, 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 refrigerator, the kitchen refrigerator well, is really just the sort of the, the, the fulcrum around which um, the story revolves. Um, it has a very long history of how, uh, we figured out the thermodynamics of it all and how we learned to create cold. And also on the, on the other side, there's a long, his- there's a long, um, a large amount of stories to do with, uh, how refrigeration isn't really linked to food or, or, uh, air conditioning or that kind of thing.
0: And, uh, I, and I think you've told a
1: story. I'm sorry.
0: I thought you told almost all the stories extremely well. I was absolutely enthralled by the book, and I also love the book cover, by the way. Um, You mentioned that as early as the 1930s, it was recognized that what you describe as the cold chain is absolutely essential for civilization as we know it. And there was a nice quote that uh, later in your book, you say that civilization is only three meals away from anarchy.
1: That's right. Yes. We, we no longer prepare and preserve our own foods. Um, we just go and buy it from the store. Uh, and if there wasn't any food in the store, what would we do? <laughs> uh, um, so by three meals away, I guess that a lot of people have more than three meals of food in their, in, in stored in their refrigerators. But, uh, if all the fridges got turned off, um, if there was a power outage or some sort of, you know, almost Machiavellian force had some control over refrigerators, um, you know, pretty soon we'd all be out on the street and we'd be hungry and we'd be wondering where our next meal was coming from. And, uh, and that's, that's anarchy.
0: Yeah, I think that was uh, the basis of a not especially good TV series a couple of years ago. I've <laughs> anyway. seen it. But I'll have to track it out. <laughs> Okay, I've forgotten what it was called. Oh, revolution. Skip it. Um, (laughs) As as I read the first chapter of your book, I was amazed that cooling technology and cooling processes existed almost two millennia before the birth of Christ. I think our listeners would be interested in hearing a little about this.
1: Sure. Uh, Well, it goes back a a lot further than that, but it's quite simplistic in that it was just harvesting natural ice and, and keeping it. Um, and using it to cool down drinks, and perhaps uh, preserving fruit or, or that sort of thing. Um, but so that's, that that was going on in Mesopotamia four thousand years ago. Um, wow! Uh, pretty primitive, as I've said. It was, they they would dig a hole, they'd line it with wood and straw, and then they if, if they came across snow, which was not unheard of in that part of the world, on top of the mountains in the winter they would put it in the hole and keep it. Uh, it was only really the, um, the nobility that had the ability to do that sort of thing. Um, but by, uh, the last few centuries of the, of the BC era, you, we see a, um, almost industrial scale, uh, uh, Ice industry developed in Persia, uh, where they have the ability not only to store ice but also to, to make it at will. And it comes out of um, the two things about Persia: it's very dry; uh, there aren't any big rivers flowing through it. Really, this is this is uh, what's now Iran. So uh, east of, of Mes- so east of the two big Middle Eastern rivers, the Tigris and Euphrates. So east of there, quite dry, but it's also quite mountainous. Um, so you get quite cold weather, but there 's not a lot of flowing water, so they developed this uh, incredible ability to go down and get hold of the groundwater and run it through channels uh, and control water in a in a very intricate way um, uh, but they didn 't want to bring it above ground, so a lot of it, because then it would evaporate away um, and so a lot of it is under underwater under sorry underground um, water channels and systems and that sort of thing. And then from that um, technology, they, de- they developed a means of making ice and, to, and also using the wind to cool water and to keep ice frozen. So I could go into detail about, about how they made the ice. It was basically a, a wall that was running, either a very high wall that ran east to west. Um, and on the, on the northern side of that wall, they had a shallow pool. Um and the wall kept the shadow the, the, the pool in um shadow away from direct sunlight, and when the night fell on a cold winter's night, it would freeze. So by morning you had a supply of ice. And then they would store it inside um conical uh ice houses, similar to a cistern, the same sort of technology that they'd already developed to main, to keep cisterns uh very cool and um, uh, in the, in the uh, f- year-round um, it the, the traps, they, they had um, the ability to trap prevailing winds um, and that uh, gushes over the top of the ice and up through the conical interior and the various pressure effects that are, are, are caused by that yeah, they release. obviously
0: had a primitive understanding of thermodynamics to a certain extent here and, and it's impressive. And equally impressive and fascinating was your next chapter, which was called Conjuring Cool. And it must have seemed like magic that Giambattista Della Porta was able to produce ice by mixing together various substances. This fascinated me.
1: Sure. Well back then all science was magic. There it was in the age of the alchemists when wizards were real, effectively. Um there was no reason, I mean, it, it seems mad to us now, perhaps, but there was no reason to suspect that standing around uh, a mixing pot, a cauldron, and saying a spell was not a, a fundamental part of the process <laughs> that turned, uh, you know, uh, uh, in alchemist search for various, you know, amazing um, mythical uh, substances like the Philosopher's Stone and the Elixir and all that sort of stuff. Um, so uh jim batista della Porta, he was um he was a real life wizard he was uh um he'd been told off by the the the, the catholic church um to not discover too much stuff about the because <laughs> it was making them look bad or it was just causing the problem some of his friends were even sent to prison for it but he wasn't he was he was you know, too cool for that. He, he managed to talk his way out of it. But that's the real wizard breach. Sure. Yeah. That's probably the biggest skill. Um, he, he's remembered for being a, for putting on these displays where he would, uh, put, um, it was watered down wine. So a bottle of watered down wine. So it was, a, it was red. You could see it, but it wasn't pure. It wasn't wine. It was, there was a lot of water in there as well. Uh, and he would dunk that into, um, a, a, a curious magical mixture and give it a tap and a swirl and, and, and give the bottle a tap and a swirl and, and all of a sudden the, it would start to freeze because the curious mixture was water, snow salt, various other highly soluble minerals that he'd figured out uh, when they mixed together they brought the temperature down. Same sort of process as the why we salt roads at, at, in in winter that sort of thing. Um, and he was a bit of a showman, as were a lot of the the, the scientists, alchemists in the, um, back then. And it it would have looked rather magical, I think.
0: And also looking pretty magical was how Cornelius Drebbel managed to air condition an entire cathedral in the middle of the seventeenth century.
1: Yeah, now he was the he was the last of his kind. He was the last wizard. He knew that he was on borrowed time. I think he knew that the real scientists were <laughs> were were uh, um fast approaching um and that uh there was no their, their discovery they were interested in discovering things and didn't really require the pomp and and uh magical airs and airs that uh, he would put on them but he was a great showman as well he his, his meal ticket was to go around the courts of europe and do fantastic things for various kings and emperors um in the hope of uh, getting a pension or uh, or or that sort of thing, um, and so by the start of the seventeenth century, he was Dutch originally by the start of the seventeenth century, after various scrapes and spells in prison and all sorts, uh, he was working for uh, James I of England or or james he 's also James the Sixth of Scotland. It was when the two kingdoms started to share a king um, who who uh, he's the so this is the king who would almost been blown up by Guy Fawkes um no one a lot of people didn't like him uh and he there were several uh, uh assassination attempts um on him so he had to wear very thick clothing um as sort of body armor effectively against uh, assassins he also had um a skin problem uh which he combined with the thick clothing the skin problem, by the way, is probably the disease that made um, George III, a, a future uh, British king, mad. Um, poor for it. It's a, it's a, it was running in the family and it, you know, uh, at the time. Um, so he was a very uncomfortable king, let's put it that way. He was wearing very thick clothes and he had a terrible skin problem. And, and then when the summer hits in the UK, although it's, you know, it's not, it doesn't last very long, it can get relatively warm. So, he, so his court wizard, his court magician, Cornelius Drebbel, decides to um, chill the king out by using air conditioning in uh, Westminster Abbey, the, one of the biggest churches in London. Actually was the biggest church in London then, one of the biggest in the country. Um, how he did it is no one really knows. Uh, being a showman, he made Drebbel always hid what he was really doing. You know, he, he wasn't a scientist in the modern mold. He was a, he was, um, an alchemist in the old fashioned way. So he, he would obfuscate and, and obscure his, his work. Um, so it, plenty of history enthusiasts have, have had a go at, at trying to figure out what he did. He probably almost certainly used, um, GM Batista's teleporter, um, the previous italian guy who was a generation before uh would have used the same what's now known as a frigorific mixture a cooling mixture so salts things like saltpeter and uh some snow uh to to create a very cold liquid that then he used to set up a convection current inside this giant vaulted church and uh to create at least a layer of coal there near the ground the king walks in he's been sweating because he's wearing all his body armor and whatever and he gets a bit cold so he leaves but it yeah. <laughs> uh, but it
0: worked and it's okay yeah it's still very impressive but now we move on to the scientists and one of the guys who in the scientific world i don't think gets the credit that he deserves is robert boyle because i think robert boyle is responsible for the idea of that heat and cold are the result of properties possessed by their constituents, rather than something you absorb from the outside world.
1: Yes, uh, he put forward um, that kind of idea. Although it, you've probably put it more succinctly than he did, um, but he certainly hated the idea that hot and cold were too dis- uh, Some people were saying that hot and cold were two distinct substances, so you, something could contain heat and cold at the same time, effectively. Um, They were understood back then as almost invisible fluids, invisible gases, rather thick and slow-moving that sort of oozed around. Um, We couldn't detect them other than through the the sensations of hot and cold. Um, They seemed to self-repel each other. And, uh, you know... These were ideas that sort of made sense. Um but Robert Boyle, as you say, was the first proper scientist. Um he got his inspiration from Francis Bacon, who was uh a another Courtier of James the uh and a contemporary of Cornelius Drebel. Um but they were two completely different uh you know figures and Francis Bacon sets up the concept of the scientific method again, although he didn't do it very succinctly, but he sort of kickstarts the idea of uh, hypothesis experiment and, and, uh, that sort of, that way of doing what we understand now as modern science. And, and Robert Boyle was so impressed with this, with what's known as the Baconian method that he sets about just trashing all the nonsense that the alchemists have been spouting for centuries. Um, uh, and he's remembered for a gas law. Uh, so he studied the way air works, and he's probably best remembered for that. He, 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 he used a vacuum pump to remove air and, uh, and then learned lots of things that we now find almost intuitive about the way gases and air work. But at the time, you know, no one knew them until Robert Boyle did them. So, for example, when you take, um, air out of a, of a, a, a glass jar, uh, a, a feather will just drop straight down. You know, there's no air pressure. There's no sort of air resistance that makes it float. And, um, sound doesn't travel through uh, a glass jar that hasn't got any air in it. And if you put a mouse in a glass jar and suck all the air out, the mouse dies and things like that. So he, he said about using a systematic scientific approach to this sort of thing, um, and, and and I think three years later, he's, he 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 moved from trying to figure out the, the mysteries of air to to what he started to look at what cold was. Um, at the, in, I think this was 1663. It was a very cold winter, so he had a lot of opportunity to do some experimentation. But then the man who was transcribing his manuscript uh, ran away to Africa. Um, perhaps he thought the weather was too cold and he wanted to go somewhere warmer, but it did mean that um, Robert we'll Boyle now had to start all over again. So it took another couple of years to get this book out. Um, but in it, he, he explores um, the source of cold. Uh, does it come from the ground? Does it come from the air? Does it come from water? And he, as you see, as you said in your question, he said there's something going on in the way that the things, the, 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 the corpuscles, um, that make up a substance, the way they behave, just as the way they behave has an impact on, on, um, the way the corpuscles of air have an impact on the way the air is behaving in other substances, the corpuscles in that, the way they're, they're behaving in a certain way, which relates to heat and to cold. Yeah, that's
0: what science is. It's progress. And by the time we get to the 19th century, we get two of them big hitters, namely Jewell and Thompson. And these are the people, I think, that are basically responsible for uh, understanding and creating refrigeration. Perhaps you can tell our readers, our listeners, rather, your readers, yeah. your potential readers, what is the joule thompson effect, how it forms the basis for refrigeration. And because many of us just don't know, how does a refrigerator work?
1: Whew. Okay. Um, <clears throat> okay. So, Joule Thompson. Um, there's. There's. Uh, first of all, you start with something called Joule expansion. Now, that's very straightforward. That's in line with what Barbara Boyle was doing. You have a, a, a glass jar or, or a vessel that contains a certain amount of gas, and you have an identical vessel on the other side, which is empty. Connect them together, open a tap. Um, The gas from the first vessel will go into the second vessel and its volume will double and its pressure will halve. Now that's pretty straightforward. But Joule, James Prescott Joule noticed that there were slight changes in the temperature of this gas, only very tiny, uh, and it was probably down to, you know, the thermometer not working very well. Enter William Thompson, now known as uh, Lord Kelvin. <clears throat> and together with Joule, um, they in- developed a different system where, instead of just opening the tap and letting the-, the-, the gas just diffuse into the empty space, they pumped it through a small hole from one vessel to the next, and they discovered that the, the second vessel became the gas. The second vessel became very, very cold. What's happening? They didn't exactly know. But what is happening is that we, we it took another 50, uh, 70 years to figure it out. Um, what is happening is that when you when you're forcing the gas into an empty space, forcing it to expand, it turns out that there's uh, the 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 molecules, the atoms in the gas are not completely independent. They're actually pulling on each other in a certain way, and so when you're forcing them to expand. They have to fight against this these tiny attractions, which are trying to keep them all together, and that uses up some of um, uh, the heat energy that each uh, atom has, and so the whole thing gets colder. So, what's happening in a fridge? Effectively, that's happening at the bottom of your fridge. There's a, um, a pump going, pushing a fluid through. <laughs> A very small nozzle, it expands, it gets very cold, it expands into a gas. This gas is very cold, and as everyone knows, cold things get their heat from hot things. So, compared to the, this, this, this uh, expansion vessel of cold gas, the stuff in your fridge and your freezer is warm. So, some heat is going from your fridge and your freezer into this uh, cold expansion vessel, warming up this gas. That's basically what was happening. But the fridge also will take that expanded freezing cold, the very cold gas. It will collect it. It will squeeze it into a hot liquid. It, it will squeeze it so it becomes um, a liquid again uh, and a warm liquid. And then it will send it off up to the top and around the back. And that heat... Will but the 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 warm liquid is now the warmest thing around, and it gives out its heat to the surroundings. Which so the same thing's happening again. The hot thing is giving its heat to the cold thing. It just turns out that the the hot thing now is the compressed liquid, and the cold thing is the outside. So the liquid loses its heat, carries on round. Then it's pumped through the the, uh, the nozzle again into the expansion vessel. It gets cold. So it's the cycle that's going round and round and round. Um, and it's just what it's doing is it's pumping heat out of the food compartment and into um, the kitchen or you know the rest of the universe
0: it's just wonderful and we didn't really get the technology established for doing this until the 20th century and in the 19th century we had the big ice we had the big ice industry that stemmed first from natural ice and of the stories you told, the one that I really liked was the story of Frederick Tudor, the Ice King of Boston. And it not only sheds light on the importance of the ice industry in the 19th century when it really came to the fore, but also shows that a truly good idea, or at least a truly good business idea, may succeed no matter how poorly it is implemented.
1: Yeah, I'm, I've got. To, I've, I just, I think that I was a bit hard on Frederick Tudor. <laughs> Um, he had a lot of problems. Um, as you say, it was, a, it was a very good idea in that he, uh, from the Boston area in the winter, a lot of ice. No one wanted it. It was free. He also had access to, or at least he thought he had access to ships that were empty because the Boston trading ships would often leave port empty, go off somewhere and do their business away from Boston. So he thought why don 't I put this free ice into this free cargo space and take it somewhere where ice isn't free where ice is um, uh, in, in, in you know, incredibly short supply it you know non existent so his original idea was to take ice from New England down to Martinique in the um, Caribbean uh, but untold problems um, uh, occurred. Uh, you know, where, where do we start? Um, one of the problems, the, the, the problem he didn't have was that the ice, uh, how can I say this? He didn't have the problem of the ice melting. Um, when it was packed correctly, a lot of the ice survived the, the voyage. Of course, he didn't have, once, once he'd reached Martinique, he didn't have anywhere to put it Um, he didn't have any customers because, because no one really wanted any ice. They didn't quite, they didn't know what it was and they were quite happy without it. Um, um, so he became something of a pusher, an ice pusher. He would give his ice away free for a week and then everyone would come back and say, I've got to have to lower this ice. Um, so it took him a very long time to build an infrastructure at the, uh, at at the, in the, in the, in the tropics, um, so it started in the Caribbean, Cuba, uh, and then the American South. So he was building ice houses in these areas. Uh, there was, I think there was a, there was a a trade embargo with the, with the British. There was at least one war. I'm trying to remember now. Uh, he, he got yellow fever, um, uh, some Spaniards turned up and tried to have him expelled from, from a lot of the Spanish, um, territory down there. You know, he, uh, a lot happened. <laughs> <laughs> well, at
0: least he didn't have the Catholic church on his back. Like, that. <laughs> yeah, well, <you> know. <laughs> um, uh, anyway, uh, Why did the natural ice, the business of uh, harvesting natural ice, storing it, transporting it to other places, um, why did that give way to artificial ice and
1: why? Um, uh, So thanks to Frederick Trude, uh, everyone, not everyone, but a lot of people who hadn't, who'd done, you know, been perfectly happy without having any ice in the summer, decided they needed ice. So New Yorkers wanted ice. Bostonians wanted ice, so there was a huge demand for ice. It wasn't all just going down south. Um, uh, so economics kicked in. Uh, you could get um, some lovely clean ice from way up in uh, Canada or or Maine. Uh, some of the deep lakes and and deep rivers up there would produce wonderful clean ice, untouched by civilization, or you could get some cheap ice cut from the local river. And, of course, that's what a lot of people went for. Uh, At the time, people thought um, that the freezing process was somehow would cleanse the water, cleanse the ice. Of course, all it did was just sort of freeze the germs and the the muck. Uh, And so there were a lot of incidences of um, typhoid and Dysentery and other rather nasty diseases breaking out in areas where ice was cut from sewage out, you know, too near to sewage outflows and that sort of thing. Of course, down yeah. in, um, in the south, uh, all the Northerners were the American South. All the Northerners were having all the using all the ice, and so they started to look for other. When uh, the Civil War didn't help, of course, in, in the in the in the um, the market, uh, the market that kind of ruin the market for them. Uh, so they started to look for other ways of making ice um, and they turned to uh, mechanical refrigeration uh, which had been um, invented over, well, well, the 1750s was the first time someone showed that you could build, You could there was some sort of process that could be um, harnessed. Uh, but by the 1850s, people in the American South and Australia and India were um, using uh, giant mechanical refrigerating ice factories um, they weren't particularly successful but in those places they were still economical and they were still, they could still produce ice that could be sold um, uh, and then when the technology improved and the the, the, the the price of mechanically produced ice goes down um people start people further north where there's you know it's 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 much more of a choice can i have the the natural ice or the artificial ice slowly everyone starts to shift towards the artificialized mainly because one of the reasons is because it looks more natural um ice from a river is full of tiny little air bubbles whereas ice from uh, uh, A a mechanical ice factory would be the the water would be much stiller um, when it was freezing, so it looks clearer and more blue and sort of more natural, even though it's the complete opposite. (laughs) See what I mean?
0: Another thing that uh, fascinated me, and I guess I sort of knew about it in the back of my mind, but it wasn't really spelled out until I read your read your book, was the idea of the modern cold chain and all the refrigerating vessels that go into transporting the various items of produce and stuff that needs to be refrigerated. And so perhaps you can trace the evolution of the modern cold chain a little.
1: Okay. Um, uh, well, the answer to how, um, the cold chain came about was in the short answer is slowly. And with a lot of problems, uh, if you think about a cold chain, your, if you think about your kitchen fridge, that's the final, uh, the final point in the cold chain, so whatever food and drink, uh, it has travelled towards your fridge inside a temperature-controlled transport corridor. It may have been on a plane and a ship or a, in a train and a truck and eventually in your uh, your shopping bag and in your car, and it comes into your house and into the fridge. If your fridge isn't working, the whole thing's a disaster. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, we had to replace our fridge because it wasn't working.
1: Right. So when you imagine the, the, so everyone, the idea of the cold chain, a lot of food producers and food retailers got on board with it quite quickly when, when the technology was, uh, we're talking in the second half of the 19th century now, when it, when it became something that could be done, people they, they immediately got the idea of it. But just like with any chain, It's only as strong as the weakest link. So your your uh, your wonderfully produced fruit could travel across the continent, but as soon if it it, if it gets to your city and there's nowhere to store it, then it's rotten within you know 18 hours or whatever you know, and so it's all been a waste of time. Uh, So to build a cold chain, you've got to there. There were a lot of incidences where the cold chain failed. And a lot of people lost a lot of money. Um, but they kept going because, um, you could, the, the, the logic was impeccable. It was just a question of, um, making sure that the chain was strong enough all the way along. And now, of course, it's, um, it's, uh, it's almost impregnable. Um, there are, uh, you can trace the temperate, you can trace not only where food has been, but you can, You know exactly what temperature it was at every step along its its long journey, which could have been thousands of miles long.
0: Wow. That's sort of like when I send a package by UPS or FedEx or something like that. They tell me where it is every single moment. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And and, um, one of the things also, when I was growing up, there was uh, uh, people were discussing flash freezing. Um, because that was, as I recall, that was the process that got the really frozen food into the refrigerator. Maybe I'm wrong about that, but I remember Clarence Birdseye. So maybe you can talk a little about him and flash freezing.
1: Sure. So there was quite a lot of convincing had to be done to, um, so we talked a little bit about the cold chain and the retailers and the food producers. They were all quite happy with it. They, 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 saw the benefits of it, of mechanical refrigeration and refrigeration in general. Um, the domestic customer was probably uh, more reticent about it. And it took quite a lot of convincing to, um, to get them to spend quite a lot of money on these, on, on domestic refrigerators. The the, the first ones in in the 1920s and maybe a few years before they, they were very high end goods. They cost twice as much as a family car. And again, of course, a family car back then was a very expensive thing. Um, uh, but eventually, they were run one round, and one of the, the things that um, uh, persuaded people was not only was the food safe, um, keeping it in the fridge, there was, that was a long battle that, that was won, um, but a thing a fridge could do, which an icebox couldn't do, previously people had iceboxes, just a food storage container with a lump of ice on top, and it chilled everything out, kept, stopped it from going off quite as rapidly. The thing that a mechanical refrigerator could do is actually make ice. That's something that no other machine, you know, the ice box can keep things cold, but it can't make things freeze. It can't make things, ice cannot make ice in that way. Um, and so people were thrilled with the idea of making their own ice, but they didn't necessarily, weren't particularly thrilled with the idea of freezing food, mainly because in the early days, when you froze something like a fish or a uh, uh, fruits, the process, uh, the, the cooling process, was quite slow, and you, uh, ice crystals would form, and they would form slowly. And if you imagine um, uh, a rock that's formed slowly underground, it's filled with massive crystals, and the same would be true of frozen produce um, that's that's frozen slowly. You get these large crystals, and then They've sliced through the, the integrity of the food as they formed. So when you defrost, you get sludge, effectively. <laughs> and you've also lost quite a lot of water in the process. So, it's, so bizarrely, it's dry sludge because the, 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 the ice sublimates. It doesn't melt. It gives out, um, out vapour. So you've got dry sludge, which is not what anyone wants. <laughs> and then, and then uh, Clarence Birdseye, he ever—I don't know—in the UK and in Europe, everyone thinks Clarence Birdseye is a captain because his company's adverts are Captain Birdseye, who are and he's like a pirate and um, it's giving frozen fish to children and things like you know. Anyway, uh, I don't know about it, whether in the in the states. Um, the word bird's eye goes quite so succinctly with, with captain. But anyway, he wasn't the ship's captain. He was a taxidermist um, whose first job was to shoot coyotes in the Rocky Mountains, I think. Uh, and then he went to make his fortune as a beaver trapper up in <clears throat> Labrador. Uh, while there, he saw that the local uh, Inuit people, were, when they caught fish, they just left it on the, on the snow, on the ice, and within... A fraction of a blink of an eye, you know, in a few seconds. The thing was rock solid because it was minus forty degrees up there. And so he realised. Uh, and then when, when they came to cook it, when they defrosted it, came to cook it. Uh, it was almost fresh. It was just as good as fresh. So he realised that if you could freeze fish or any food super fast, um, then you wouldn't have this problem of create of, of the ice crystals expanding and just slashing the food into sludge. Uh, and he, as is um, a recurring theme in the story of these people, he he did go bankrupt trying to develop this thing. It took him from nineteen. It took him from nineteen fifteen to about nineteen twenty six. Uh, he lost a fortune, but then made another one. He developed a system where the food would be it would uh, be frozen in boxes and squeezed inside a super cold. Um, freezer where the top and the bottom went from the ambient temperature of the box the top and the bottom of the box when they went into this freezer were just was sort of uh, grabbed by the by the on the by the conveyor belt and it would go down to minus 40 degrees centigrade which luckily is also minus 40 minus fahrenheit. 40 fahrenheit yeah <laughs>
0: One of the numerical facts I happen to know. <laughs> we give that a lot in algebra
1: classes. <laughs> uh, and so uh, he, he started to freeze fish. Um, he's known in, in, in Europe, at least, for, for the fish, and he also uh, frozen vegetables. Um, and so then you had a actual, you could start to sell frozen produce, and it was a much easier ask to, for the domestic consumer now that they were falling in love with their fridge and it's, and it's ice trays and all its gizmos. Um, then to say, tell you what, why don't you also buy a big freezer, big chest freezer, put it in the garage and fill it with pre-frozen flash frozen food. Um, uh, they, this, there was less skeptic- skepticism. People understood maybe the quality was diminished slightly, but you got convenience in return. And so everyone started to buy freezers.
0: Yeah, I you know I remember that I remember that period very well. I'd like to use the remainder of the interview to go on to some other aspects of refrigeration and air conditioning. Is not as critical to survival as refrigeration, but air conditioning has not only made life a lot more tolerable. It has undoubtedly extended individual lifespans in hot climates and has reshaped the population distribution of the United States.
1: Yes, a third of um, households, household energy is devoted to refrigeration, and most of that isn't keeping making ice and keeping the food cool. It's, to, it's cooling the house, um, and you're right. Uh, air, air conditioning was actually invented by accident um, by uh, Lewis Carrier, uh, who was trying, this was 1902, 1903 I think he was trying to come up with a way to stop ink running in the humid in atmosphere of a printer's in Brooklyn and he decided he would just de- dehumidify the air and, in res- uh, and it worked treat. Um, it's dehumidified a treat his dehumidifier which was, worked on a similar process to a refrigerator uh, but it also made the, what was previously a oh, horrendously hot, torrid place to work this printing, print works it also made it a rather pleasant place to work. So he stopped making dehumidifiers for print works and, and started to sell uh, aircon. Uh, and his market was the Sunbelt. So from California to Florida, um, people who live there, uh, their life could be transformed, not only by the air conditioning, but also by the refrigeration and the cold chain reaching down from... Uh, the farmers' fields and the coasts where the the fish and other produce was coming ashore. Uh, you could the coal chain would bring all of that into semi deserts of southwestern America, and you could live in relative comfort in your air conditioned home with your fresh fish and fruits. So um, yeah, it kind of changed the world, and certainly in that certainly that part of the world is transformed and the uh, transformed. Beyond all recognition in well the last yeah. seventy years
0: yeah and one of the things uh, the last portion of your book is devoted to some of the surprising aspects of refrigeration and the applications to which it's uh, uh, which it supplied and one that interested me was I didn't realize that the original h bomb was heavily dependent upon refrigeration
1: it was yes it yeah, you, you people might think that it was something dropped from a plane, it wasn't. It was this vast multi ton deep freeze, one of the coldest objects on earth at the time. Um, so it was an experiment in um, a thermonuclear, an experimental thermonuclear device, really. Um, and um, a thermonuclear device is an old fashioned, well, yeah, at the time, a traditional nuclear fission bomb like the ones that were dropped on Japan the pressure from that from an explosion like that was used to then squeeze some radioactive hydrogen which had to be kept at liquefied so uh, just about, uh, a handful of degrees above uh, absolute zero so I can only ever do it in centigrade you'll have to help it's that's about 200 63 degree, minus 260 degrees centigrade. Um, it's about 430 Fahrenheit. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so you've got a nuclear bomb around a tiny, <laughs> it sounds bizarre, a nuclear bomb around a tiny little fridge with some liquefied radioactive hydrogen in it and um, the, the explosion of the nuclear bomb then squeezes this radioactive hydrogen and creates a fusion explosion, same sort of thing that happens inside the sun, um, and you get a very, very big bang. Um, but of course, you couldn't get one on a plane; it weighed more than the plane. So, uh, so they, they, the, the, the H bombs, the, the thermonuclear weapons that sadly are dotted around the planet today, um, they use a dry uh, uh, fusible ingredient made of lithium so we don't need the uh they don't need to be liquefied with refrigeration but the first one ever yeah it was a, it was a fridge effectively
0: one of the developments that's taken place in physics over the past few decades is the idea of laser cooling could you describe it and how it has changed the landscape
1: of science Ooh, okay just a little <laughs> <laughs> So a laser is a beam of light with one color, one frequency, one wavelength. Those they, all those, three words are interchangeable. Um, uh, the photons of a laser, each photon, each particle of that, the light in that laser carries a fixed and unchanging amount of energy. Um, and an atom uh, is an atom of any kind. Um, is able to absorb photons uh, with only specific energies. So a hydrogen atom absorbs, light, absorbs photons that have different energy to, say, a lead atom or an iron atom. And so you can tune your laser to have uh, a, a wavelength to produce, you can tune your, your laser to produce photons to match whichever atom you're dealing with, and fire your photons at, atom, at these atoms, and they will absorb those photons. And then there's something happens in the atom, and then they give out more, more. They give the photons out again. Now, with laser cooling, what you're doing is making use of a Doppler effect. So the Doppler effect is the thing that makes the, the, uh, the police sirens change notes when they go past. The same thing happens, what you're, what's happened is you're changing the wavelength, changing the frequency of the sound wave, and laser light, the frequency and the wavelength of laser light can change in the same way when it goes past you, effectively. It depends where you're, according to where you're observing this light from. So what a laser cooler does, now I'm, I'm worried that I'm, no one's following what's going on. But, okay. Well, you can assume that our
0: audience is relatively sophisticated, and if they're not following what will happen is hopefully they'll be
1: sufficiently intrigued that they'll pick up the book. Okay. So what's happening is that uh, with, a, with uh, you've got a cloud of um, gases, a cloud of atoms, and you, and you want to um, cool it beyond what you can do with a mechanical, mechanical refrigeration system, so... These things can go pretty low, but there is a limit to how low you can go with with various different um, uh, methods of refrigeration. You can go even lower with laser cooling, and what you do is you fool your atom into giving out um, heat. You tune your laser to produce photons that are only absorbed when one of the atom's... Is approaching the laser. If it's moving away from the laser or being still, the laser it won't. The, the the laser will just shine shine on past and not have any effect. But if the atom is moving towards the laser, the shift in frequency of the of the photon gets picked up by the atom. It absorbs the atom, but then it and that slows it down because there two are two sort of. If you imagine that there's two sort of uh, bodies bashing together and so the atom slows down. It gets, that means it gets colder. It then gives out another photon, but in a random direction. It doesn't have to be... It's not bouncing off like uh, a ball bouncing off a wall. Uh, this photon will go off in any direction. So there isn't... Um, uh, there is a net change in the heat of this atom. So very... It's, pretty, it's extremely hit and miss. Very gradually, you can take... Um, atoms down to incredibly low temperatures. You can take clouds of atoms down to incredibly low temperatures um, along with um, uh, various other techniques. And with that kind of thing, with, with laser cooling, uh, they've been able to make something called a Bose-Einstein condensate, which uh, is sometimes called the fifth state of matter. Now some people might wonder what the fourth, you know, there's, there's liquid gas and solid, they're the three states of matter. So the fourth one, what's that? That's plasma. That's sort of the stuff that's in the sun. Um, and then the fifth one was the Bose-Einstein condensate, which you make using laser cooling. Well, not me, not not you or I, but it has been made using laser
0: <laughs> cooling. Yeah, I haven't got much of it around. The <laughs>
1: yeah, well, the, as far as I know, they can't make much of it. They can only make probably packets of about 2,000 atoms of this stuff. Uh, But what happens uh, at a fraction of a degree above absolute zero, the atoms cease to have their own personal identity, and you get this sort of marvelous, amorphous blob, a condensate. It's not really a liquid. It's not really a solid. It's not really a gas. It's a completely different thing.
0: You're losing your... Losing its own identity is sort of like uh, becoming a follower on Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. Anyway, let me close with uh, let me close by asking you to just spend a couple of minutes on one topic that I think will fascinate people. And then we'll find out a little more about you and your next project. Most people have heard of cryonics or cryogenics freezing to extend the lifespan. Um, What do you think of this development? Do you think it's going to happen?
1: Well, I was a bit skeptical when I started. I just thought, oh, these, you know, um, I I thought they were a little bit misguided. But the more I looked into it, I thought, oh, you know, mm, actually, thinking about it, um, maybe there is something in it. The big, the, the what they, what these people do is that they have their body preserved at the moment, as close to the moment of death as possible. So it's, um... Uh, I, I don't really understand the medical uh, things that are done, um, the treatment, but the idea is to put the brakes on uh, natural processes and just store the body as close to the moment of death as is practically possible. Now, we can, uh, so we have to sort of take as red as that the process, that process is actually, we have to uh, agree that that process ha- has been successful. Um, you can't defrost them and check. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so they're in. <laughs> well, maybe centuries from now. Yeah, sure. So, yes, you, they, they, they won't know successful until they've, decided, they, they've figured out what to do. Now, the, the big misconception that I had was that I thought that in the moments after death, the body sort of, Starts to die, you know, four minutes after the brain cells are dying and all this sort of thing. And that isn't really what's happening. What's happening is there are changes happening, changes inside the cells, which mean that any attempt to give them back what they need for life, oxygen and blood and that sort of thing, will destroy them. But they're still alive. They haven't yet. They, they, it will take quite a long time for them to die, hours Perhaps for them to actually die, but they've just gone beyond the point where it's possible to bring them, to rejuvenate them. So does that make any sense? Yeah, uh, So sure. it's, so the, um, that's, that, when I realized that, that it's these reperfus- it's the reperfusion of the body which actually kills it, not the fact that it's not had any oxygen and blood in it for a while. It's the actually putting it back in that does the damage. I didn't realize that either. Um, that's when I thought, oh, well, that's a problem that can perhaps be solved. Um, you know, you'll have to ask someone else how they're going to do it. Um, well, my speaking, roommate in got college got themselves some time at least, and you know, good luck to them.
0: It's going to take a while. Yeah, I had a roommate, I had a roommate in graduate school who, ca- who belonged to something called the Life Extension Society and carried around a uh, card in his wallet which said, in case of sudden death perfuse in liquid DMSO and freeze to the temperature of liquid nitrogen. And he's still alive, but I'm sort of curious to see whether or not he dies before I do and has this done to him. Anyway, Tom, um, I'd like to thank you for the time that you've spent with our listeners on this. And I'd like to ask you how people can get in touch with you. Do you have a website? And what projects are you working on at the moment?
1: Uh, The best way to get in touch is through Twitter. Uh, My handle is at Tom now that's not spelt uh the way that it should be probably it's j i n j a t o m uh it's just it's a high school nickname and <laughs> um, <laughs> so if you want to get in touch uh you can contact me through that um i have websites and other other things but it's, that's that's the best way of making contact um my other projects. Well, I'm a, I'm a professional writer, so I, I, I work on all sorts of things all the time. I write for children, I write for adults, I write about natural history and sciences, and uh, but my real love is the history of science. So that's why um, uh, chilled, That's where chilled came out uh, came from. And what I'd like to do next, I, the publisher is still having a think about it. Um, would be the history of standard candles, which sta- uh, just like Chilled isn't... In astronomy. Sure, yeah, just like Chilled yeah. isn't really about refrigerators. Um, the history of standard candles isn't really about candles. It's, the as you say, the astronomical concept of stars that you can tell how far away they are by their brightness. Um, there's a lot Tom, if it gets there.
0: written, put me on the list of people who get to review it because I'd love to read it. Yeah. Anyway, thank you very much for spending the time with us, and I wish you best of luck on this project with Standard Candles and any future projects you may have. Well, thank you very much for your interest. It's been great fun. It's been a pleasure. Take care.